men. It's called the turning point. A football player picks up a fumble and runs it in for a touchdown. A political candidate makes a fatal gaffe in a debate. A salesman launches a mammoth or lands a mammoth account. The situation suddenly takes a 180. The prospects are radically altered. It's the turning point. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 10. God gave Peter a vision that altered the whole scope of Christianity. Prior to this moment, the ancient world viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. The first Christians were Jews living in Jerusalem under Jewish law. But Acts chapter 10 was the turning point. God opened the door of his family to Gentiles. He showed Peter and the church, both then and now, that his grace is for every race, both Jews and Gentiles. At the time, God's people ate from God's menu in Leviticus 11. Jews were kosher, whereas Gentiles didn't bother. What was eaten and not eaten was a source of Jewish pride. Diet set Jews apart from everyone else. But it was lunchtime in Joppa, and God shows Peter a picnic blanket full of unclean entrees, all off limits to Jews. As a friend of mine told me last week after the Bible study, he said it was the first pigs in a blanket. <laughs> I like that. And God told Peter to pig out. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And after some hesitancy, an initial reluctance, Peter steps over his religious prejudices to obey God's will. For Peter could see that what God was doing with diet, he was also doing with humans. In light of the work of Jesus, religion had become obsolete. Keeping the law and its dietary code no longer mattered. Salvation was now by God's grace through faith in his son Jesus. This meant folks didn't have to become Jewish to know God's favor. Salvation was now open to all men. God no longer divided humans into special and common or clean and unclean. After the cross, the only line of demarcation among men is whether you are in Christ or not. The cross has become the new crossroads. And Peter was immediately called on to act on what he'd been shown. That's true of grace. We're not only called on to believe God's grace, but to act on it and share it with those around us. This religiously devout Jew gets a knock on the door, and he goes with a delegation of Gentiles to a Gentile city, to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius to speak to a Gentile audience. Peter tells Cornelius' crowd about Jesus, and before he finishes his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on their believing hearts. It's interesting, without a single person getting circumcised or hearing a lesson on Sabbath keeping or conducting a reading of the law or offering a single sacrifice, perhaps over a plate of smoked ham and hog jaws for all we know, God saved the Gentiles just as he had the Jews by faith. Salvation was by Christ alone and faith alone, and it is still today. Acts chapter 10 forever altered the direction of Christianity and the composition of the church. And as Gentiles, we should be glad. 
Because of Peter's vision, we can follow Jesus and enjoy pork barbecue all at the same time. Now, Peter's vision was good news for Gentiles. But there were Jews who thought his actions were blasphemous. What was Peter doing, ignoring 1,500 years of tradition and running roughshod over the Jewish law? Not everyone was happy with Peter. In fact, there were angry Jews in Jerusalem who called him into headquarters to provide an answer for what he had done. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 11. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, or Jews, contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, remember back in Acts chapter 6, Luke tells us that a large number of Jewish priests had become believers in Jesus. Obviously, they carried a deep affinity for the principles of Judaism. They were staunch traditionalists. For centuries, you had to be a child of Abraham to become a child of God. Gentiles who wanted to know God had to join the Jewish community and ascribe to the Jewish law. So what is Peter doing now, swinging the door open to Gentiles without any stipulations upon them at all, other than faith in Jesus? The bigwigs in Jerusalem thought the Gentiles should have to jump through a few Jewish hoops to be saved. You remember the game we played as kids? Two lines would form facing each other. Everyone would lock arms together and lock hands. Then one group would shout, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sandy right over. Little Sandy would muster up ahead of steam and he'd race toward the other line to try and break through the wall of interlocked arms and hands. Well, imagine Jesus standing behind the church at Jerusalem, and he's calling, Red Rover, Red Rover, send the Gentiles right over. And here come the Gentiles, led by Peter and Cornelius, racing toward the church, yet the Jews clenched their teeth, and they locked their arms, and they put up a wall. They're determined to maintain the status quo and keep the Gentiles out. And we need to take heed. For whenever a church tries to keep people out whom God has taken in, they are opposing the gospel. People of another color or of a different background need to be included, not resisted. Well, these Jews had questioned Peter's actions, but they weren't privy to his vision. And so he recounts what he had seen on the rooftop, beginning in verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Peter admits he was initially reluctant. He had some reservations, as did the Jews. Verse 9, but the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed 
you must not call common. Ignoring these dietary laws wasn't Peter's idea. It was God's command. See, God had changed the rules. God said it was okay to eat bacon and put sausage on your pizza. And he said it three times to hammer home the point. Verse 10, now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. You see, the Old Testament law conditioned the Jews to view all of life as either clean or unclean. It was a grid that governed food and people and days of the week and houses and times of the month and certain skin conditions. I mean, everything in life was viewed as either holy or unholy. But the cross of Jesus cleared away these distinctions. The law proved that all men are unclean. The only holy one is Jesus. A new dividing line was drawn. What decides our status now is our relationship with Jesus. Peter continues his story. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. It was Peter, six other Jews, along with the three Gentiles from Cornelius who had come to fetch Peter. In one sense, it was just a few miles up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea. But in another sense, they crossed 1,500 years, a 1,500-year-old ocean of precedent. And he, the Roman centurion Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. God had sent an angel to Cornelius. That's how much God wanted to save the Gentiles. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Peter says, it was just like Pentecost when God saved us, the Jews. It was a sovereign move of God. It was a work of his grace. Peter and his Jewish pals had done nothing special to warrant God's salvation. It was all about grace, and that is exactly the way it had come down to Cornelius. Verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is God's gift to give, and Jesus gives it to whomever he chooses. Thus, Peter concludes, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? I'd be fighting against God if I resisted what he was doing among the Gentiles. And notice, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It was suddenly obvious to the church as well as to Peter that the salvation of the Gentiles was God's work. And for the moment, the opposition was muted. Yet before we leave this story, please note that Luke saw fit to include it twice in his record he includes it twice for emphasis 
Both Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 basically tell the same story, describe this same colossal moment. And remember, Luke wasn't writing on a 500 gigabyte hard drive. He was writing on a piece of parchment with very limited space. And yet he knew that this was the turning point. He knew that what occurred at Cornelius' house was no triviality. It was a major breakthrough in the history of redemption, and its record would be needed for future reference. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, this makes us appreciate Peter's step of faith. Peter had gone where no Jew had gone before. Peter had cut a trail where there was none. You know, it takes special men to pioneer new works and to blaze new trails. It takes clear vision and decisive action and unwavering conviction and courageous faith. Once the trail seems safe, then other people jump on the bandwagon. But in the beginning, the pioneers are few. And such was the case here. There were few Jews willing to follow Peter to take the gospel to Gentiles. For the most part, the gospel was spreading from Jew to Jew. Other men needed to climb on the bandwagon. And there were some who were branching out. He says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. They're getting closer to the Gentiles. They came and they began to preach the gospel to the Hellenists. Now remember, the Hellenists were Jews who had adopted Greek culture and language. They were secular Jews, you could say, who lived as Gentiles. And these unnamed Cyprian evangelists began to target these non-law-observant Jews with the gospel. And the hand of God was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Antioch. Antioch was the capital of Syria. It was a city near the Mediterranean coast, 300 miles northeast of Jerusalem. After Rome and Alexandria, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Antioch's population topped over a half a million people. Now realize Antioch was an architectural wonder. Its main street was paved with marble. It was lined with marble columns. Historians say that it was the only road in the ancient world with street lamps. Its splendor earned it the nickname Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. Antioch of Syria was situated on the Orontes River, 20 miles upstream from the ocean. It was known as the gateway from the Eastern Roman Empire toward the West. Antioch was the key hub for travel westward and the perfect place to launch an outreach to the Gentile world. In fact, as we move through the book of Acts, we'll find that the church that started in Antioch became the beachhead for Christianity's invasion into the Gentile nations. Obviously, Jerusalem saw the strategic significance of a Christian community in Antioch, and that's why the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to encourage the startup church. 
Verse 23 speaks of Barnabas' arrival. Now, when he came and had seen the grace of God, God was at work. He was so glad and encouraged them all with that with all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Any pregnant ladies here this morning? Well, if you're looking for a good name for your son, why don't you try Barnabas? I love that name. Barnabas, what a great name for a a young man. Barnabas, it means son of consolation or son of encouragement. You remember Barnabas had befriended Saul when the other disciples in Jerusalem were afraid of him. And it was under Barnabas' leadership that we're told, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Antioch was dedicated to the Greek goddess Daphne, who in Greek mythology was violated by Apollos. And in keeping with its founders, the city of Antioch was a place of wickedness and sexual perversion. Sexual perversion ran rampant in Antioch. It was a city full of temptation, yet in desperate need of Jesus. And Barnabas's message to the church was to hang tough, be tenacious, strengthen your grip on Jesus. You know, today we live in similar surroundings. Our culture seems to worship sex. Perversion is commonplace. Ours is an anything-goes society. It's people gone wild. We too need purpose of heart to continue with the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. You see, the church in Antioch was growing quickly. And Barnabas needed help. And so he seeks out a man perfectly equipped to help him reach Gentiles, his buddy Saul. In fact, Saul would end up proving to be more gifted than Barnabas. Yet rather than being threatened by Saul, Barnabas knew Saul was needed. And so he humbly put the cause above himself. And he recruited his old friend. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Before Antioch, followers of Jesus went by different names. Believers, disciples, receivers of the word, servants, people of the way, to list a few. But they were first called Christians at Antioch. Recently, I ran across a list of famous people who earlier in their life or career changed their name for a more sophisticated, stylish-sounding name. Robert Zimmerman became Bob Dylan. Marion Morrison became the old Duke, John Wayne. Now, you're going a little too fast, Chris. I want a little bit more suspense here. Isher Danielovich became Kurt Douglas. Peter Hernandez. Chris is getting into the suspense now. Is now Bruno Mars. Eric Bishop is the comedian Jamie Foxx. And finally, Betty Persky. Betty Persky, how's that for a name? She became Lauren Bacall. 
But the believers in Antioch, notice, they stuck to their uncouth, embarrassing-sounding name. For Christian was originally intended as a derogatory term. The suffix I-A-N, it means the party of. Christian meant the party of Christ. And this was how the Romans referred to their slaves. Claudius's slaves were known as the Claudians. Anthony's slaves were known as the Antonians. Thus, for believers in Jesus to be labeled Christians, it was meant as an insult, as a mockery. And yet Christians were honored to be slaves for Jesus' sake. Paul gloried in being a fool for Christ's sake. You remember Peter would later write, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, anyone calls you by that name, in other words, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. We should all consider it a privilege to bear shame for Jesus' sake. Verse 27, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, prophets were men who uttered impromptu, extemporaneous messages from God. God would fill their minds and mouth with a message. They would deliver a specific word for a specific circumstance. And prophecy, by the way, is still a spiritual gift available to the church. But then one of them, one of the prophets named Agabus, stood up and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, the gift of prophecy is a direct word from God's Spirit, often addressing a situation contemporary to its hearers. And here Agabus' prophecy was a dire warning. Through him, God foretold of a global famine. The Jewish historian Josephus, he mentions this famine in his Antiquity of the Jews. During the first century AD, all across the empire, famine produced high prices and food shortages. Many people starved to death except the Christians. In fact, the church was somewhat insulated from the famine. Why? Because the believers cared for and shared with one another. And not just person to person, but from church to church. Notice what they did. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. The church in Antioch wanted to send some help, some financial help to the church in Jerusalem. A daughter church wants to help the mother church or the mothership however you want to, for you Star Trek fans. Often, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has helped out other pastors and other churches in times of hardship. Why? It's best to be generous for who knows when you might need the help yourself. So the believers in Antioch, they took an offering for those in Jerusalem. Verse 30. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Galatians 6, verse 6 teaches us that him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Gentile believers in Antioch understood their debt to the Christian Jews in Judea. The Jerusalem church had sent them Barnabas. Now it's time for them to return the favor and send Jerusalem back a blessing. So they send Barnabas back with a few bucks. Chapter 12. 
Now, about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, when it rains, it pours. So on top of the famine, a wave of persecution now strikes the church in Jerusalem. And the Jewish king Herod was the culprit. Now, the New Testament is full of men called Herod. Herod was a title, actually. The first was Herod the Great. His rule ended shortly after Jesus' birth, and his kingdom was divided among his three sons. One of the sons was named Aristobulus, who had a son named Agrippa, who is the Herod here in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa was Herod the Great's grandson. This Agrippa was a haughty man. He had friends in high places. In fact, He had been schooled in Rome, and he became pals with an aristocrat named Caligula. Later, Caligula will become the emperor, and he promoted Agrippa to king of the Jews. Agrippa was a shrewd politician who tried to win over the Jews, and he knew how much the Jews hated the Christians, and so to rack up some political points with the Jews, he mounted this crusade of persecution against the church. Verse 2. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was the apostle James. This was one of the original 12 apostles. Tradition says that he was beheaded. And his execution, no doubt, elated the Jews. They couldn't have been happier. As a matter of fact, the Jerusalem Post announced that Agrippa's approval rating had climbed 20%. So he decides to go after another of Christianity's ringleaders. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. This King Agrippa keeps trying to get ahead. He keeps trying to get ahead. Pun intended. Yeah. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Agrippa would have killed Peter immediately if it hadn't been the week of the Passover. And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now this Greek word translated squads is tetrads, which was a group of four soldiers. So four squads of four soldiers Each were dispatched to stand guard over Peter. This was maximum security. I mean, someone may have told Agrippa about the earlier time when the Sanhedrin had arrested Peter. And you remember, God sent an angel to bust him out of jail. King Herod wanted to make sure that this time Peter wasn't going anywhere. And so around the clock, there were two soldiers chained to Peter and two more standing watch as if four soldiers would be a match for a battle angel sent from God. Well, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Hey, Peter's head is on the chopping block. So what does the church do? Oh, they pull out the big guns. Rather than write letters or picket or protest, or sue Agrippa, they pray. They pray. The Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once wrote, 
The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Brothers and sisters, nothing is more powerful than a praying church. Nothing. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now put yourself in Peter's sandals. You're awaiting execution on death row. I mean, James has just been beheaded. You're under heavy guard with no possibility of escape. What would be your disposition? The one certainty is you wouldn't be sleeping peacefully. Yet Peter is sawing logs. He's experiencing a supernatural peace. Again, Peter is in the storm, surrounded by winds and waves. But this time, he keeps his eyes on Jesus. He remains unshaken. He stays above the water, above the situation. Realize, every miracle in your Bible started out as somebody's problem. And it's when you stop focusing on the circumstances and fix your eyes on Jesus that God can stop working on your attitude and start working on the miracle. Hey, rather than asking why, Peter's cutting Z's. He's walking on water again. Peter is living supernaturally. But don't forget, he's not doing it alone. A praying church is in his corner. Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. Notice Peter is snoozing so soundly the light doesn't bother him. The angel has to actually knock him to wake him up. And his chains fell off his hands. Now, I want you to notice the angel tells Peter to arise quickly. One commentary I read noted that in the Bible, angels are always in a hurry. They always do stuff quickly. In contrast, only once do we find God in a hurry. Do you know when? It's when he runs down the road to greet his prodigal son who has returned to him repentant. That's the only time God runs. It's when he runs to greet the prodigal. But angels seem to always be in a rush. And we can guess why. If heaven and the presence of God were your home and you were dispatched to this wicked planet, don't you think you'd want to tie up business as quick as possible to get back home? I would. See, that's why angels don't dilly-dally. Well, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Now, don't you think if the angel unlocked Peter's chains, he could have also dressed him supernaturally? But, but notice this, miracles always have two parts. Yes, God shoulders the heavy lifting, but we also have a smaller role to play. He told Peter to put his coat on and get his shoes latched on. God usually involves our participation as well. Verse 9, and so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, Peter's not sure whether he's dreaming or whether he's awake. He's just not sure. He hasn't had his morning coffee. 
He's in a fog. He's kind of pinching himself. Is this real or am I just dreaming? Reminds me of the lady who had this strange dream one night. She said afterwards, she says, I dreamed I was eating spaghetti, but when I woke up, my pajama string was gone. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Been looking for a place where I could just throw that one right in. Verse 10. Now, when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. It was like an electronic door before electricity. It just zoop. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. This was the second time an angel had arranged Peter's jailbreak. Peter keeps getting thrown into prison, and God keeps breaking him out. You know, the Lord is faithful to his people. But remember what his people were doing. Remember? They were praying. They were praying. God is faithful to his people. His people are faithful to God when they pray. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, this was a special house. I mean, this was probably the same house that had hosted the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. This was probably the house where the outpouring of the Spirit took place at Pentecost. And it's now the site of the prayer meeting where the church is asking God to save Peter. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. (laughs) This little girl, Rhoda, she was so excited at what God had done, she forgot Peter. She just left him at the door. But isn't that the point of prayer? Not the answer but God. See, we think the point of our prayer is the answer until God shows up, and then we realize the point of prayer is for us to know God. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. You're mad, Rhoda. No no way. Notice this. They didn't believe it was Peter knocking on the door. They had been praying for a jailbreak, but evidently without much faith, because when it happens, they don't believe it. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. And notice here, the early church must have believed in guardian angels. That everyone has an angel assigned to them. We all have our heavenly bodyguard. One day we'll meet him perhaps and share our thanks with him. Or maybe ask him, where was he back in 19, whatever. I'm not sure there's one specific angel for every believer, but the Bible does teach, and the church certainly believed in the reality of angelic activity in their lives. Verse 16, now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. 
Notice the church prayed, but apparently they prayed some pretty puny prayers. Their prayers weren't packed with a whole lot of faith, and yet they prayed. You know, which I think teaches us an important lesson. We don't have to pray big and bold prayers for God to answer. Jesus said that faith the size of a mustard seed, a tiny little mustard seed, is enough to move mountains. Even frail, feeble prayers with a twinge of faith can move the hand of a willing God. We need to pray. You know, the only prayer God doesn't answer is the prayer that was never prayed. Verse 17. But Peter, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. This was another James. This was the brother of our Lord Jesus. He too was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he, that is Peter, departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Caesarea, of course, was the headquarters of the Roman occupation and the home of Herod Agrippa. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Now, Luke gives us a little political background for what is about to happen. The Phoenicians had bribed Herod Agrippa's aide, this man named Blastus. The lobbyist had greased his palm to gain some political favor. Israel was an agrarian society. Tyre and Sidon were sea merchants. Israel looked to their northern neighbors for trade. The Phoenicians needed Israel for food, and so they bribed Blastus to win favors with Herod. Which proves that what goes on in Washington today is nothing new. Herod also needed to drain the swamp. The only problem is that Herod was a swamp. As we learn about next. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. He held a political rally in the seaside theater there at Caesarea. Next time we tour Israel, I hope you'll get to go with us, and we'll stand in this exact spot. There's actually a perch in the theater for the dignitaries. This was where Herod stood. And what a spectacular venue this theater was and is today. A hundred yards away, the waves of the ocean slapped the beach. On that day, the sky was clear. The sun was high in the sky. The seats in the theater rose upwards. You know, today among the ruins in Caesarea, several, and of this theater, several upper decks are missing. The original theater had a seating capacity of 4,000 people. Josephus records this incident, and he dates it in 44 A.D., He says that Agrippa wore a robe made entirely of silver. He writes this, 
at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. In other words, he made your eyes hurt. He shined so brightly in the sun. Agrippa's silver threads caused Elton John to look like a thrift store shopper. (laughs) Agrippa was full of himself. He was pompous and arrogant. And on this day, he tried to dazzle the crowd with his beauty and his eloquence. He wore an outfit he borrowed from Dancing with the Stars. Verse 22, and the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And here the Jewish historian Josephus adds, upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. In other words, the crowd held him as a God and Agrippa did nothing to stop such rhetoric and set them straight. Beware. To never stand in God's place. As the old saying goes, never take the bows for God. When God is being praised, our place is in the shadows. And what's ironic here is that nobody took this praise seriously but Agrippa. All the crowd was up to was flattery. The visitors from Tyre and Sidon, they were manipulating the king's ego to get a favorable trade deal. Someone once observed, flattery is like bubble gum. Enjoy it for a moment, but don't swallow it. Don't fall for flattery. For then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. How else do you read that? Eaten by worms and died. <laughs> I mean, you can't read it any other way. Now, that's Luke's play-by-play. Play. But again, I want you to listen to Josephus for the color commentary. You ready? The Jewish historian gets even more graphic. He says, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He was carried into the palace and rested in a high chamber. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age. How ironic. The crowd in the theater said that he was divine, immortal. Yet just five days later, he was dead. That's what you get when you try to take the glory from God. Herod's plight is a commentary on Isaiah 20, 42, verse 8, where there God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. It should make us all sick to our stomachs whenever we see someone steal God's glory. Well, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Remember at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, Agrippa was cutting down Christians and the church was behind closed doors. Now at the end of the chapter, this same Agrippa is cut down himself and the word of God continues to multiply. You know, the church of every era should look past whoever is sitting on the earthly throne 
to God's throne in heaven. For God is the one who ultimately calls the shots. To him be all the glory. Years later, Peter will write in 1 Peter 3 verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I'm sure when he wrote those words, he was thinking back to his jailbreak and to Herod's demise. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Barnabas and Saul had delivered the famine relief to the church, and now they returned to Antioch with Mark, but not for long. For in Acts chapter 13, the outreach shifts from the Jews to the Gentiles, and this Saul, or a.k.a. Paul, will take center stage. You should read chapters 13 and 14 for next Sunday. Will you do that? 